Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Today, we're going to talk about Zionism again. Adam, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm doing I'm doing great. I'm still not a Zionist or a dispensationalist, so so doing extremely well. Well, you haven't been to um, the Holy Land and had your um, messianic complex fully uh, fully uh, show itself yet. So just give it time. <laughs> give it time. Yeah, that's entirely possible. You know, only time will tell. Right. I, I got to go to Waco for a similar experience. So, <laughs> um, I I think I rather explicitly have to have something to do with baptism in the Susquehanna. Just <laughs> just saying so. So um, time now for boring weather posting uh, from Denver. So how is... Yeah, you know, everybody's salty about this. They're like, well, the weather's always good in Colorado. It's like, yeah, that's why people live here, guys. You know, beautiful. And uh, Nikola Jokic uh, won the season opener last night for the Denver Nuggets. So, you know, we're doing well. Yeah, we're um, we're just getting back in the 80s again. So we're just going <laughs> to keep doing summer <laughs> until we get like three days of ice around Christmas and then sort of go from there florida has that among its seven hundred thousand license plates the the one <laughs> called endless summer but that actually should have been should have been an arkansas plate yeah you know i don't like to talk about the weather in arkansas because we'll get more uh, yankees down here we don't need that you yeah. know Luther, lutherans welcome but you gotta be careful with the hot dish down here if you know what i mean <laughs> so yeah so you've done your uh you did the solo episode on Zionism in particular, yeah, right. and today we're actually going to use, as a little bit of a springboard, a very good question from a listener, and I'll just uh, read it. Dr. Kuntz, could you follow up the History of Zionism podcast with a History of Dispensationalism podcast, bringing up the various verses from the Old Testament revelation that are so often used to support this view, and why this biblical interpretation is flawed? Thanks. History of Zionism podcast was in its way a lot more interesting for me than the history of dispensationalism, not because the question isn't great, but because the history of dispensationalism, I find somewhat, somewhat dreary and somewhat, <laughs> somewhat difficult to summarize because it permeates so many other things. So Colonel Grills is going to be extremely helpful here because he is native to <laughs> variants of American Christianity that in which dispensationalism is a life option. I am not. And this is an ongoing discussion we've had at this point, I think, Willie, for years yeah. about about dispensationalism. We've, you know, you've done a lot of work on this in the past. But yeah, I think I think we're going to start maybe a little farther back than most people do. And the reason we're going to do that is because I think you can look at dispensationalism as a certain extremely Protestant heresy. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you'll be able to, to pick up on some, okay, where exactly did they go wrong? Because the places that they went wrong or that they started wrong are going to be familiar places to most Protestant Christians. But what they're doing, the terms that they're using are going to reveal to you their their errors but it's it's all going to sound it's all going to sound plausible to a protestant at first because it's going to be like well we just interpret the bible literally we just let the bible speak for itself you know right this is where the church and revelation anyway why couldn't they be <laughs> yeah and if you want a little bit of a deeper dive on some of this and especially on schofield uh, there's some old word fitly spoken episodes you can go to we've got history of dispensationalism in the back catalog for word fitly and uh at least at least one episode on the scalawag Schofield himself, but we'll, we'll get into some of that here too. Yeah. Schofield, um, actually strangely links up with the border wars episodes in his own personal yeah, he biography. Is the scallywag of whatever Kansas, I can't think of the city off the top of my head, yeah. but yeah, it's kind of remarkable. So everything comes back to Kansas in one way or another, <laughs> even if the garden of Eden is in Missouri, hell is in Kansas. And I can't figure out why. <laughs> See, I've been contending for years that the single most important American <laughs> state is California, and and here you come trying to no, upend that. So, right. Listen, I, I don't want to disagree with you, and I don't want to give Kansas credit for anything, but I think the evidence speaks for itself. <laughs> long, long before there was a Kansas, <laughs> long before there was a Kansas, I I, I want to just start out and 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 so oh, this. Be careful, Indians now mad. Right. Right. Exactly. 
I want to set this a little farther back than it usually starts because if you sure. pick, if you pick up a book on dispensationalism and a new book has just come out about this that is being promoted in sort of mainstream, you know, like big big Eva evangelical type circles about the role of dispensationalism and 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 therefore Christian Zionism, which I mentioned in the history of Zionism episode, but for the purposes of Israel's own political situation, it doesn't matter that much. And I'm going to make that case. But mm-hmm. that that story pretty much always starts in the 19th century. And it starts with John Nelson Darby, whom we'll talk about later. I don't think that John Nelson Darby fell out of the sky. So when you're dealing with sure. dispensationalism, you're dealing with a tendency that is early enough that it some a facet of it is condemned in the Augsburg Confession. Yeah. Right. If you look at the Augsburg Confession, they're going to describe kiliasm, which is a which is the Greek form of the word for millennialism, which is a certain set of ideas part- based off the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20 about the nature of the end times. And that they will be what's specifically condemned in the Augsburg Confession is that those end times will somehow be earthly or will involve earthly prosperity or rule in any kind of definite way, particularly centered on Palestine. What's condemned in the Augsburg Confession is named, therefore, as Jewish because the historical tendency in religious Zionism is to send Jews back to Palestine and there they're going to take over militarily, right? Um, That's, I mean, that's sort of behind the question that the disciples asked Jesus before his ascension. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And there had been efforts in what we would call the Middle Ages or even in Reformation times by Jews, generally from Eastern Europe, most famously the Baal Shem Tov, to leave Poland and Ukraine and stuff, and to go to Palestine and to take over. There were people in Reformation times, including Anabaptists, and later on including some some of your stranger streams of Reformed and Lutheran and and eventually and probably predominantly pietistic thinking in various kinds of confessions that that restoration of Jews to political power in Palestine was important or was somehow part of God's plan. This is before the word or the scheme dispensationalism, which Colonel Grills can outline much better than I can. But this is what we would call kiliasm or millennialism. And that predates dispensationalism. And with without it, dispensationalism can't really exist. So it's a certain set of understandings of the Bible focused on restoration of the Jews to some measure of population predominance or political power in Palestine in what's now the modern nation state of Israel. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you can go from the ancient church and find, you know, people advocating for a literal millennial kingdom. Yeah. Another really forgotten period is that say roughly, you know, not quite a couple centuries and certainly within a century of Darby, you you even have someone like Isaac Watts, who is, who writes uh, the harmony of all religions, which is, I I actually think the long title actually uses the word dispensations, but the framework for Darby is all right there. Just a generation before him. Edward Irving, who gets forgotten about. Yeah. He predates it. And he's, he's part of something called the Catholic apostolic church. And that's located in, you guessed it, Scotland. And so um, <laughs> you get you get these weird little rumblings. But I think Isaac Watts is you're probably the most recognizable name out of the people that are going to immediately precede Darby. So like you say, Darby doesn't fall out of the sky. He doesn't actually invent anything whole cloth. And it's fair to say, in a very limited way, that his views have precedent, although never widestream acceptance until the late 19th century. Right. Yeah. And the these kinds of things it's it's important to say that when something is fringe throughout church history and there there's some debate for example about the existence of millennialism in the earliest church so let's say the first couple centuries yeah. of Christianity, right? 
and most of the guys who are, you're going to hear talk about this are it's usually going to be reformed Christians nowadays yeah. who are going to use a term called historic premillennialism. Yeah, whatever that means. Right, whatever that means. I mean, what it what it's trying to mark off is, is that they're right, is that they're not dispensationalists. Exactly. That's kind yeah, of it. Yeah, all they mean is non-dispensational premillennialists. Right. Because in my opinion, the biggest error of the dispensationalists and this is why the Book of Concord doesn't talk about them because they don't exist yet. The biggest error of the dispensationalists is going to be how they view salvation more so than how they view the kingdom. What um, what can you define yeah. premillennialism for the listeners before we before we keep going? I said millennialism, Revelation twenty. What's premillennialism? So premillennialism is okay. So it's the idea that a kingdom will be set up on earth before Christ's millennial reign. Yeah. So you'll get an earthly kingdom set up, and then Christ will show up to rule that for a thousand years, a literal thousand years. And that's gonna that's gonna be contrasted today with post millennialism, which yeah. is which is which is which is the idea that the world gets. Yeah, it, it seems similar, but here's the difference: premillennialism, the world gets keeps on getting bad, but a kingdom is kind of prepared in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. Post millennialism is the world gets better in preparation for the kingdom, right? And then the Lutheran view is amillennialism, which is that the millennium is symbolic. Right. Yeah. And and it's it might be helpful to the listeners to know that the pre and post mill distinctions don't exist before roughly the twentieth century in in term yeah. as terms. Right. And once again, the post millennialists are going to be found predominantly among the reformed. Right. Nowadays. It wasn't right. it wasn't that was not the case until after World War One. Um, a lot of the American groups that spring up in the 19th century will be post-millennialists. There's a culture of optimism, and they really believe with all of their restoration movements that they are restoring the kingdom of God on earth. And World War One comes along and destroys any notion of an earthly utopia for a lot of them. Yeah. The, the, the desire to have the Jews return to Palestine or to have the Jews convert en masse is probably the 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 weakest and therefore the most predominant mm-hmm. form of what you might call millennialism in that you can find it in the 19th century even among large numbers of lutherans who are in some measure confessional lutherans yeah and it takes and we'll we'll get into this as we get into the modern form of dispensationalism it's it's more noble in those days though because they're reading Romans 11 and they're reading other texts and they mm-hmm. see a restoration but the difference is it's not for them, purely a political restoration. No, there's a conversion of the Jew Correct. That, yeah. that comes about there. Yeah, and and that's not necessarily the case with modern dispensationalists. No, no, not at all. I mean, you have you have various agencies in most um, European state churches in Europe that, as you have what we reference in the history of Zionism episode, as as Jewish emancipation. That is the Jews are integrated, especially in Western Europe, into everyday life in every way. That that goes along with in Germany, in France, in England, a a big focus on preaching the gospel to Jews. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's notable to me that in the in the nineteenth century, you actually you have figures like that. Maybe most famously, and if the listeners want just to be highly entertained by a book, uh, Rabbi John quote, rabbi, that was his nickname, Duncan, <laughs> right. right, comes out of Scotland and preaches the gospel to the Jews in Hungary for years and years before returning to Scotland. There's a little book that he never, he never wrote anything. <laughs> and so it's just a collection of his aphorisms. Great, great thinker, funny guy. But well, you know, he's not unique in that there are lots of missionaries to various Jewish populations in the 19th century. And that that's that's the form of quote millennialism that you'll get even a, even with a person like Wilhelm Leia, right? And so the Mormons are a good example of this um, because of their views on the history of at least certain a certain part of the Jewish people. Yeah, uh, very <laughs> yeah, you know, right. <laughs> you know, relatively early on, once they start their big, once they get out to Utah and do their large missionary pushes. They're going to have the Book of Mormon translated into Hebrew. Yeah. And really early on, they're going to send representatives out to the Holy Land, out to Palestine, um, you know, kind of in hopes of jumpstarting a kingdom. But nowadays they've done a 180 and will no longer proselytize in Israel. So make of that what you will. Oh, okay. 
So good, good luck finding that Hebrew. You know, I think they right. still publish it, but they don't distribute it. The Hebrew Book of Mormon. Hebrew Book of Mormon. Yeah. Yeah. You you have a Hebrew quad, don't you? Yeah, it's on the back shelf here. It's just <laughs> behind me. It's on the this. What you can't see is the entire shelf of Mormondom that exists. <laughs> Many rare books pertaining to the Restoration are are in this office right now. <laughs> Capital R. <laughs> Can we can we go from the term dispensation as just sort of a term for organizing? Yeah, what was what was sometimes called covenant history, right? Because dispensationalism. Yeah, good. I mean, yeah, the word's going to show up in the King James. It's a fine yeah. word that you can't use anymore because of dispensationalism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there, there there is a sense in which it is true. There are different dispensations throughout biblical history, and you can't get around the fact that the covenants, while there's one thread, golden thread running through them. Now I sound like a '50s Lutheran. But, you know, that that certain terms changed for different covenants. That's just a fact. There are certain obligations in certain covenants that aren't in other covenants. The Mosaic Covenant has more going on in it than the Abrahamic Covenant does, for example. There's more rules. The problem with dispensationalism, and this is probably the time that I can define it the best way I can, yeah. is that dispensationalism says that God acts differently among his people. And most notably, saves people differently. Right. So they'll give lip service sometimes to say, well, they were still always justified by faith. But if you dig, it's usually, so faith is always the key, but it's faith plus, at the in the Mosaic dispensation, it was faith plus this. In the Abrahamic, you know, it was this. Up to Noah, it was this. I kind of work backwards there, but you get the point. Yeah. That at different times, God worked to save in different ways. And the most insidious version of that you have in modern dispensationalism, where you'll have what is sometimes called dual covenant theology, where you have the new covenant, where you're saved by grace through Jesus Christ, and the Jews who are saved by obedience to the law. And I think that's explicitly taught by people like John Hagee. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, and so basically they're saved by, and occasionally they'll try and soften it up, but they're still saved by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So what, they just don't know it. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> how can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's also always relies on most, almost all Christians, total ignorance of Judaism. Because if you look at yes. modern rabbinic Judaism, correct. Yes. It has some resemblance, but but it it is go it is not governed by the Bible. I think Christians I, think Judaism am, is governed by the Bible. That, one thing that should really get your radar up is when somebody a, a Christian, whether you think they're a great exegete or not, comes to you and says, "As the rabbis say." <laughs> and when your hermeneutical when your hermeneutical principle is first not Christ, but what people who deny him say, we're yeah. on some pretty shaky footing. We're on some very shaky footing, and and. And, I, and 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 uh, people do not understand the significance of the destruction of the temple in the year 70, the rise of Christianity leading to the rise in rabbinic Judaism, um, the codification of the Talmud, uh, and what that means. Right. And how it—while you could say that in the book of Acts, Christianity is emerging from Judaism, it's actually Judaism, as we know it today, emerges in reaction to Christianity. Right. Yeah. And and the ignorance of that, of that history of Judaism being younger than Christianity right. and a reaction to events prophesied by Jesus. People don't know that. So they're like, oh, well, you're 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 Jewish. So that's OK. You have your other way. Everybody else has to come in through Christ. You don't. You're under the old covenant. They're not under the old covenant. Right. They're not. The Talmud is not the old covenant. Exactly. They're not they're not carrying out the sacrifices that they're supposed to. For example, even if the law had been given mm -hmm. for salvation, they're not doing it. Yeah, there's no place to do it. Right. And 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 killing a bunch of chickens in New York City once a year is not fulfilling the covenantal obligation. Right. And you know, it's it's a shame that people see this and not to turn this into a KJV only podcast, but <laughs> but you know, I mean, the, it is it, the it, only NKJV only <laughs> right <laughs> go ahead bless uh, bless translation we love it the uh this is why mastering greek is important so you can read the septuagint and see the and, and see what has been changed in the masoretic text and then draw your own conclusions there 
I do believe that they downplayed certain aspects of the Old Testament uh, Christological prophecies in the Masoretic text in order to kind of hide the truth about Christ. Let me, the, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, sure. No, go ahead. Let, let, let me just define those terms for the listeners because we, we sure. always have people all over the place. Is that the Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is older than the Hebrew text that we used to mostly, you know, mostly to translate the Old Testament. And the issue here is that because of that, you have an interaction between that ancient Greek translation that reflects an, an even older Hebrew text. Exactly. Like like at Isaiah 7.14, where the Septuagint clearly says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Mm-hmm. And, the, and, and a word that is not really, I mean, can, in context, it's not ambiguous, but just on a sheer level of the word in the Masoretic text, that is our, our medieval Hebrew text, that is the basis for the Old Testament translation that, that you're using today, whatever Bible you have. Now that word is a little ambiguous in Isaiah 714. Is it really a virgin or is it just a young woman? Exactly. Or, you know, And so the interaction between those texts is not cut and dried. Like Right. Well, and everybody thinks I'm pro Septuagint because of giants, and that's only half half a slander. <laughs> is it even a slander? <laughs> yeah. So so you're de- you're you're dealing with I I would say whether you're talking about modern Judaism or the history of the text of the Old Testament, you're dealing with most peoples and certainly most American pastors' complete ignorance of the history of both of those things. Yeah. And therefore, they don't really know what they're talking about when they talk about Judaism today. And they think of Jewish people and their the religion of their forefathers, as it were, as somehow being attached to modern Judaism. It is by virtue of mm-hmm. historical practice in the same way that maybe your family or my family or somebody's family is attached by historical practice to not going to church. <laughs> that doesn't mean right. that constitutes like a separate way of salvation. Like, well, if you're kind of a, you know, indifferent, you know, rationalistic Anglo, it's fine if you don't go to church, you know, because that's what your forefathers did. The the religion of Abraham is Christianity. So if a Jew would truly be attached to Christ, he needs to come in by the same way that Abraham came in, who right. you know longed to see the day of yeah, Jesus. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That's yep. right. And and it's so simple. Uh it, it's really so simple textually. I mean, John 8, Jesus could not make it more clear. Right. And the reason why the Israelites don't believe today is because a great veil has been put over them. Right. Use another biblical verse. They they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. And so instead of encouraging them in a false religion, we actually should be proselytizing. Right. And regardless of you know the the modern narrative that's like, well, look, we drove them out of these cities and they couldn't own land, and you know we had all these things and blah blah blah. No, take all that away. The fact is, you have to believe in Christ to enter into the kingdom. Right. Regardless of what happened to your ancestors or whatever, right? Like regardless. Yeah. Regardless. I mean, I mean the Celts can't they don't get to do that, you know? Or, <laughs> or or pick any other group. Well, yeah, I mean this is totally tangential. But this is why I I've I've I'm I I've gotten a little sick of, you know, Appalachia. JD JD Vance ruined Appalachia by including Ohio in it. But but I also <laughs> get sick of it sometimes because it's just like it's just like the 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 poor white version of this. Like oh, everything has always been so hard for us. Get over it. I mean, it. Yes, yeah. yes, it has. Yes. Yeah. You know, you still need yeah. to be saved through Jesus Christ. Yeah, everything's what, been hard. Yeah, get over right. it. Right. What, exactly. what, what are you going to do about it? Right. And it's absolutely absurd. And it's it's what cuts the sand out of evangelism in general. And it's related a little bit to, you know. It's a chicken or the egg kind of thing, but the same symptom is present in the kind of evangelism that is only doing like mosquito netting and and uh, toothpaste drops and stuff like that. Yeah. That's not the mission work of the church. All due respect. Um, yeah. And and so so you have on the one hand people who like let's take Israel out of it, who won't even preach in these other countries, and they're confusing mission work with. The God or um, mission work with social work. Yeah. Right. Kind of go back to our NGO discussion. 
But then on the Israel side, you have an even worse form of it in modern dispensationalism, where you have evangelical Christians predominantly, and, and we're talking mainstream evangelicals, not the even weird offshoots, who send money to organizations to build a temple in Jerusalem to restore animal sacrifices, which might be the most blasphemous thing you can do. Yeah, right. Yeah, let's yeah. just let's just negate everything that Hebrews says. Let's just negate yeah. it. You know, I mean, people with crosses on their walls are might as well take them down if you want the temple to return. <laughs> well, and often in modern evangelicalism, they this have is taken, fair. You know? This is fair, <laughs> right? But I mean, I, I was I was thinking as you were talking is that Roman Catholics have not taken their crucifixes down. And I don't think are paying for a third temple, as far as I understand. But anybody can get into heaven if they yes, if they, try, if they believe hard enough. Yes, Vatican II has specific documents, especially sort of excusing the Jews from accountability to God through repentance yeah. and faith. And the Roman Catholic Church, in fairness, had one of the strongest missionary efforts in the world until about Vatican II. Yeah, they did. Right. Yeah, because what what gets eviscerated when you start misunderstanding the Bible is the urgency that the Bible assigns to the proclamation of the gospel. Absolutely. And and that that might still exist for a dispensationalist if you're talking to somebody from whatever Paraguay, but it doesn't exist in this one specific case. And that that's why sometimes we've been talking about this as a theological orientation, but it's sometimes the whole position is described because of its political effects as Christian Zionism because of this giant set aside that it has for yeah. Jews politically. Which is, and which is not which is a different term from messianic uh Christianity or, or sometimes called messianic Judaism. Right. Because that is that's basically you know Christians who want to LARP in uh in some rabbinic stuff and i know that's the most insensitive way i can put it but it's like look if you want to be a seventh-day adventist just go be a seventh-day adventist yeah there are, there are definitely pre-existent judaizing forms of christianity you could use without having to go into hebrew hebrew roots or celebrate and again yeah. you always get this sort of like weird backwash where you're taking ceremonies from medieval european judaism yeah and then reading them back into the i mean that's that's every passover seder in every you know 1993 lutheran church you've ever heard of right well that seder that little pamphlet that a lot of you find in your jewish section of your kroger your king supers every year around you know passover um that's a medieval document right we, yeah we don't actually know what the passover looked like at the time of jesus yeah but the rabbis the rabbis said and I'm not, and I'm not even convinced that they were doing a full blown Passover meal, Last Supper wise. But that's that's more of a timeline reason. We can get into that you know, another yeah, day. Right. Yes. Right. Well, and I th I think part of the part of the thing to take away from a his from any history of dispensationalism is that if this is a really specific form of this mistake, this error, or in some cases this heresy, then it's something that affects lots of other churches. So the Lutheran church has been affected by this, even without, you know, even while being about 700 miles away from anything resembling dispensationalism right? in the way that we interpret the Bible. We still believe, for example, that modern Judaism is somehow like a, a cause. I mean, we're like more charitable mm -hmm. to, <laughs> to modern Judaism than we are to Baptists. Yeah, Let's be honest. hundred <laughs> percent. But it, it all involves this sort of reading of whatever's going on in modern Judaism back into the Bible as if that's that's authentic Bible stuff and nothing else is. Whereas your Passover Seder is effectively the same thing as, you know, here's my Ambrosian Rite Mass. You know, <laughs> right. I mean, it's I mean, it's contemporaneous. You know? can, can, I mean, look, just don't do Seders. I don't know how else to say yeah, this. Just Not do the, the first Lord's podcast Supper. I'm on. Yeah, just do the Lord's Supper. Um, <laughs> you really have the cool. reality of Jesus Christ. And, and that's the other thing. On that, you don't have to do a Seder, and you don't need to go to the Holy Land, because Jesus Christ himself is bodily present in your church every Sunday on the altar. Well, King of Israel comes to you. No <laughs> right. need to go to the Holy Land. Yeah, yeah it, unless there's a third, uh, or not a third, but unless there's another crusade, then we'll, uh, that might be different. But 
But beyond that, yeah, I mean, folks, and and the Lutherans don't do, uh, I hope they don't, uh, when they go to the Holy Land, but the evangelicals do, they go and they get baptized in the River Jordan again. Yeah. And it's all just a bunch of, and, and look, you're giving hooey. money to. It's yeah, hooey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're giving money to people who hate you and who don't like you and who deny that you're Lord and Savior. So quit it. So speaking of people giving money to people they hate, the Schofield Reference Bible, please, right. please explain. Yeah, because and, and this the, is this is the catalyst, yeah. right, for for how this spreads. Yeah, and okay, so all right, so uh, first uh, to the listener, ask the question. If we don't get into your Bible stuff, we we'll have some stuff hopefully in the show notes to uh, that'll kind of flesh out some of the biblical verse stuff. But the Schofield Reference Bible. C.I. Schofield, Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, is going to publish a an annotated Bible that popularizes dispensationalism. And he's going to be a fundamentalist, and it's going to really take root in fundamentalist Christianity. So what is the Schofield Reference Bible? So you all are used to study Bibles everywhere. They've not been really common until very recently in history. The Geneva Bible, probably the closest, certainly the earliest English version we're going to have. It's going to have a few little study notes and things like that. But for the most of, say, American Protestant history, you're going to have two Bibles, or excuse me, two books on your shelf. You're going to have a King James Bible, and you're going to have Matthew Henry, Henry's commentary. So people are kind of hungry for the scriptures, but also explanations. And you're going to have all kinds of magazines and tracts and other things. But Schofield is going to publish a handy Bible with all of these study notes in it. And to this day, it's still published, in whatever edition it's in, as the Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield is a fundamentalist leader, but before that, um, he's a very shady character. He's he's um, He gets in trouble for bribery and fraud and all kinds of other things, like I said, known as the scallywag of, I think scallywag of Atchison, of Atchison, Kansas. And he is going to uh, become enamored with the kind of proto-Zionist movement. He is going to be funded by Zionists in his publishing project, and wouldn't you know which side he falls on once it comes to publication. And so that's a very Cliff's Notes version of how we got here, but you basically you have a man of shady reputation who is taking money from interests at odds with historic Christianity, and he incorporates those interests into the study notes for what will become the single most popular study Bible in history. And it's probably still in the top five in sales today. I would be shocked if it's not it got to be top 10. It, it, I, I totally, I mean, it's, it, if you go into what remains of Christian, you know, brick and mortar bookstores, it's always there. Yeah, it's 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 always there. You you don't you don't always have the R.C. Sproul Study Bible and KJV. Thank you, but but you always have the the Schofield Reference Bible. You will always have with you. Yeah. Now his his defenders are going to say that in '79, before he really got into all this, his case, you know, one of the cases against him was dismissed and and he was converted. But it really seems like reading the history that Schofield kept doing all the stuff he was doing just amongst the fundamentalists now. And it's really hard to read the history any other way. Yeah. And I'm not even getting into stuff about his marriages and that sort of thing. It's, it's that, it's that linkage with the fundamentalist movement mm -hmm. that is so important, right? For how dispensationalism spreads. Yeah. Because... And like you said early in the episode, you know, th this is peculiarly Protestant because of how the way a lot of them read the Bible, quote unquote, literally. And that's what Schofield does. You know, what is clearly symbolic in the Old Testament, things like Daniel, or at least we'll say mystic instead of symbolic or whatever, whatever word you want to use. He is going to interpret them very literally. And from there can make a very convincing case to your average fundamentalist who is now doing everything they can to believe the plain meaning of the text. It's going to yeah. be very persuasive to them. Right. And and so they're going to come into it honestly. Does Schofield have other intentions? I think so. I think Schofield's in it for Schofield. The people who are reading his Bible, however, I think are sincere Christians who are misguided by a very persuasive 
sales pitch. Right. And a very persuasive system. Right. And dispensationalism grows from Schofield on up into the 1900s. And I'm going to way fast forward us up into, say, like the 80s mm-hmm. with your televangelists and um, late great Planet Church, you know, stuff like that. Those sorts of books. And even on into the 90s with in the 2000s with the Left Behind series. And so what begins to happen, and it correlates well with our rise of media influence, is, you know, everybody's getting a newspaper now, and then everybody is watching movies, everybody's watching television, and dispensationalism, especially in the 60s and 70s and 80s, takes on a very sci-fi kind of feel. And so now you are able to be part of what looks like a science fiction movie. You're seeing it play out. And as a Christian, you're part of this epic, you know, kind of Frank Herbert thing going on. And so that's why it gets so much weirder and so much worse in the last century is because of that. And when you're, when you're thinking about maybe as we, we get a little kind of close to the, to the hour here, as you're thinking about what's going wrong here in the Bible, one really simple way is to, is to understand what the word literally means, which of course almost everybody who speaks English struggles with. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when we, when we say that we interpret the Bible according to the literal sense, that is drawn from the Latin meaning of litera, which means the sense of the letters. So if the letters want to say that they're talking about history, like they're doing in Genesis or the Gospel of John, then we're interpreting the Bible literally to take it as history, where they plainly want to be symbolic like in the back half of the book of Daniel or throughout the book of Revelation, apart from the letters to the various churches. Mm-hmm. And even there, there's symbolism being used and they explain this right at the end of chapter three, for example. So what you're always dealing with is, yes, you want to interpret the Bible literally. God means to communicate with you through those letters. The question is, how is he doing that? And sometimes he does that through symbols. So the basic misunderstanding that's going to lead to all the other misunderstandings is that they're taking Daniel and Revelation in a sense that Daniel and Revelation don't want to be taken as somehow dark prophecies that have to be unfolded through an understanding of what's going on in the news. Yeah. But the knowledge of news media, which will then backfill, you know, what the prophecies mean is it is part of that communication culture that that pastor girls talked about which if we don't have it you know i it's it's hard for me to see how you could get dispensationalism going in a in a big way in 1710 because right you would you would need a bunch of people with knowledge of world events and the capacity to then behave in accord with them and i just right i mean I and at that yeah. time you've got the scots covenanting their land to wherever it is to God. So they're not going <laughs> right. to buy that. They're yeah, not going right. to buy that. That's true. You, you know, um, a lot of the, one of the, th- the reasons we're doing these episodes is because of all of the political stuff going on in the world right now. Yeah. And Lutherans are getting a little over into that. Oh, is this a sign? Is this where we're at? I think though, on the positive side of this, as we're getting ready to talk about the political aspects of it is that it's not the 1980s anymore or even the 1990s anymore. No. That if this was going on in, say, 88, this would be a much, much more politicized. You'd see the church in a much more vocal way on one side. Now, it's clearly still very lopsided what side they're taking in the recent conflicts in the Middle East, but it would be a much bigger thing if it was 40 years ago. Yeah. Or even 30 years ago. Yeah, and I mean, in the... In the late seventies and the eighties and the nineties, you got your, you know, you got your sci-fi books, you got your Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth, but you also have something called the moral majority. That really is an electoral block that is gonna try to swing particularly the South and Southern adjacent places, which honestly at that time, in a religious sense, still includes like Southern California into voting in a particular way about things like abortion and other generally other moral issues so that they will lock up 
part of the Republican base. And that st- that endures to this day, that the work that was done then to swing those places into the GOP camp. However, that wasn't ever of nearly the significance that non-Christian Zionism, right? So all of these variants of pretty much always Jewish Zionism are way more important for American politics and obviously for Israeli politics than Christian Zionism ever was. So there, you know, there's a certain market for evangelicals to read about themselves. And in this case, basically about their parents mm-hmm. and how their parents voted and why, you know, and to ponder this in some sort of Wheaton College serious type way. That's whatever. That's something they're welcome to do. It just, I, I don't, th- I don't think, I don't see how it matters nearly as much as like Project for a New American Century or, or APAC or something. Dispensationalism matters to convince a certain segment of people that whatever modern Jews do should be supported because they are, quote, God's people, apart from faith, apart from the works of Abraham, mm-hmm. right? Set all that aside. But sociologically, yeah, sociologically, it's interesting to see this. You can go on your whatever social media you want, and you can see the generational divide here. Oh, big time. Yeah, just in just in this one geopolitical event, it's it's very interesting to see. And I do think the tide is turning, and I think that that bodes well for the theological outlook of younger Christians. Yeah, the I I think the the attachment to Israel per se as a country th- that and I'm I, I'm thinking as I say this really really more of Lutherans than of dispensationalists because okay yeah because I'm fascinated by how this permeates people's thinking who don't know the dispensations don't have a Schofield reference Bible wouldn't believe it if they did would make fun of the rapture okay nonetheless they if they are you know. 65 years old are almost certainly supporting Israel in any conflict between Israel and Palestine. See how powerful that is that you feel like you have to take a side. You don't have a side when there are conflicts in Indonesia between Hindus and Muslims. Why not? Well, you, know, you know, part of it is just short-term memory or forgetting their own history. When you're talking about a people who would be like, well, I'm German, as if that meant anything before August 18th, 1866. <laughs> you know, that was something like, it was a, it was much more of a generalized term. You yeah. Know? <laughs> right. Right. And right. Yeah. And and that's how and that's how they mean it. But it's sort of similar to that. I mean, what you had, but what you had in the case of the creation of Israel was very different. Let's say Italy, eighteen forty eight, or Germany, eighteen sixty six. They don't exist yeah. as nations as as a unified nation prior to that. They're different kingdoms who are together. But the difference is, as a culture, they're still the same. Okay, you're roughly still Italian, almost up the whole boot, except for the north, and then. And Germany, then German. <laughs> and then you're German. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so, but you know where I'm going with this. Um, yeah. But Israel, you're taking people who were in Europe for centuries, and you are creating a country, and you are dumping them there onto people who have been there for a couple of millennia. And people are shocked that there's problems with that, that, that there are negative outcomes. You know, at least the Germans had a pseudo shared culture, but. The, the 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 people who were imported, and that's what it was predominantly yeah. in the forties. Yeah, sure. Yeah, if, right. um, they were they were just not the same that lived there, that had lived there for the longest time. Right now, were there always Jews there? Yes, but for the most part, it was a different group of people. And what gets lost in this political discussion on a lot of Christians, even on a lot of or and on a lot of Lutherans, is what's happening to the Christians. The Christians are getting blown up by everybody, Correct. and maybe one side treats them better, but it's either way, it's not exactly sunshine and roses. And they don't think about that. The church is being bombed the, before, even before the wars. The Christians being spat upon, all of this stuff that should really come into play when we're looking at this, because because people say, well, politically, I think that they should be allowed to exist. That's fine, but dig a little bit deeper into why you might think politically they should be allowed to exist, because you'll find that it is often still tied up with some kind of theological presupposition. Yes, exactly. And it will be linked to 
an ignorance of Christianity in the Middle East. Right. So people will be, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is still true in, you know, as of the 2020 census, but certainly even even in the 2010 census, the vast, the, the majority of American Arabs were Christians. Now they're here <laughs> partly right. because of things we have helped to do as a nation in destabilizing the Middle East. But the re- the reason that's the case is because of the very large number of Christians who have always been there. Well, what's kind of funny is, you know, this podcast and people in our, we'll say general circle, Dr. Kuntz. Yes, sir. We're, we're always accused of being Christian nationalists or wanting to build some kind of earthly kingdom on earth. And then we're extremely criticized for talking about Israel because we don't want them to have an earthly theological kingdom on earth. I don't know. There's probably something to that. Maybe nothing, though. I I generally only get criticized like that in group chats. So, right. Uh, yeah. Right. Usually it doesn't happen in public. But but I, I think that if you if you're thinking about, OK, they have a right to exist, then you're, you're now also dealing with something. And in Canada, I've seen it called this. So if you haven't seen this yet in the United States, it's it's coming is the idea of land back, which isn't a grammatical mm-hmm. phrase. But <laughs> yeah, but the problem here is that what the way that you're trying to figure out what's supposed to be happening today is by going and looking at an ancient claim. OK, so you're going to trade. It's like you're going to trace the deed to the property all the way back and then and then trace it again back to the present and then figure out, OK, who's actually supposed to own this property? Here's the problem. Nations are not here to be instruments of unending and complete justice. Mm. They can't be. Everyone has conquered somebody else. The Comanches right. <laughs> basically obliter- they obliterated almost everybody until Texas started filling up with Southerners from the United States. You know, this is the way that history goes. It is not, it is not a theater of righteousness. Right. The righteousness that is done is rare and fleeting, right? If well, you... I mean, if 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 it's the other way, then governments are nothing more than large scale chancery courts. Yeah. Right. And which which is what I think people think they are. Yeah. Because they're there. They, we all have to change gradually into giving more and more rights to more and more people and extending essentially government benefit programs to more and more people. I think they do think. That's what a government is here to do. And the problem is nobody comes out of that with clear title. Nobody. Correct. Because if the Jews were using their own book to talk about their title, and this this is the Jewish case against Zionism, right? These are your these are your guys that get flown from Brooklyn to Tehran for certain conferences. <laughs> They're like, well, we were kicked out of the land for our sins and Messiah hasn't appeared, according to them, right? <laughs> um, and therefore, we can't have the land back. Now, some of those people receive benefits from the state of Israel. That's its own sick little story about how they they sort of game <laughs> the state of Israel while not believing that it's legitimate. N- nonetheless, the point is, if you want clear title, even if you're Jewish, you don't have it to that land. And just apart from all of the other purposes, and if you if you want clear title to any piece of land anywhere in the universe, it all belongs to Jesus Christ, right? Yep. That's why we proclaim the gospel to every nation, because it's all his. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. I, I am on whatever, you know, occupied, what am I on? I think I'm on Arapaho land, right? Guess what? The Arapahoes killed people to get that land about 100 years before the whites showed up in Colorado. Nobody has clear title. The only person with clear title is Jesus Christ. So if you're not going to call the nations to repentance, then I don't want to hear about land back because all the land needs to go back to him. It's all his. Absolutely. You know? And I say that as someone who lives on land that was once French. So <laughs> I definitely want him to get it back. <laughs> wouldn't that be so great yeah <laughs> yeah it would be sort of a yeah arkansas riviera instead of uh whatever else you guys have going on i mean i'm just saying i'm thankful for thomas yeah. jefferson in a way right. <laughs> so coming up on the last few minutes here uh yeah. no this is you know very well said and i realize that for a lot of people who are listening to this now the regular audience shouldn't be too surprised but you know some people are going to maybe come across this unexpectedly and you know, they're going to be a little bit angry about what's said. Sure. 
but it kind of goes into how one interprets the scriptures. Yes. Christ is the key to the scriptures, and Christ is also the key to all world history as well. And the providence of the Lord, which he is, and all of that. And so in our last few minutes then, to kind of get back to the original question, let's talk about how one ought to then read the scriptures, and particularly things like Daniel and Revelation. Yeah. And something that you'll notice is that dispensationalism is pretty much always going to interpret scripture, all of scripture, therefore all of history, their own actions, their political beliefs, through Daniel and Revelation primarily. And what that's going to do is that it really makes Christianity about books that in their own way, I don't think are as obscure as they have been made to be. But it skips over Jesus Christ, and it skips over the main story of Scripture, which concerns man's sin and God's salvation, or what we would call, as a way of understanding the the entire Scriptures, the distinction between law and gospel. Okay, what it also skips over very concretely is the what are called the gospel apocalypses. These are the sections, generally, right towards the end of each book each of the four gospels that lay out as Jesus describes it, what the end times will be like. And part of the support for taking the millennium to be symbolic in revelation chapter 20 is the generality with which the Lord speaks in those places. Because what he describes concretely is you're going to have a sign or the end of the world will be like the coming judgment on Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which occurs in AD 70. Okay. But more than that, and generally, there will be times of upheaval. People will be loveless. The Apostle Paul describes people this way as well in the pastoral epistles. In the last days, people will be. It's very general. You can look around at any time and see people behaving that way. Because the point, as the Lord makes clear in those gospel apocalypses, is that you are to remain awake for his coming at any time. It's not tied to the political fortunes of a certain nation, not even the Lord's own nation, the Jewish nation. It's not tied to that. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what Jesus Christ will do. And the issue there is then that Daniel and Revelation need to be understood to harmonize with that, not first explained as somehow about political events since the 19th century in the Middle East, and then you harmonize the rest of scripture with that. So when we say that Christ is the key, we don't just mean like, oh, well, there's only one topic or something. I think sometimes exactly. people, yeah, people right, misunderstood. They yeah. misunderstand that, right? And that's kind of, that's the direction a lot of like gospel-centered evangelicalism has gone. There's only one topic. Yeah, you can only ever talk about this. Gospel-centered evangelicalism, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, and so um, but what we mean, Christ, is <laughs> the key. Another target in mind. <laughs> yeah, that's right, is that we're going to run the scriptures through his words. And if they don't make sense of those words, then our interpretation of the other parts of the scriptures also don't make sense. So all of that needs to needs to make sense of the way that the Lord speaks about both political events in his own nation in the imminent future of when he speaks them, you know, roughly 30, uh, I'm sorry, 40 years mm -hmm. from when he talks, right? But at the very same time, he's like, well, you know, what's actually important is that you stay awake and watch for my coming. So everything needs to focus on him. Dispensationalism does not, cannot account for that scripturally because it keeps you focused on political events surrounding a nation that is the state of Israel is in rebellion against Jesus Christ, as is the United States of America. But it's like, I'm not going to follow, therefore, the political fortunes of the modern nation state of Israel anymore that I'm going to claim that somehow right. the United States of America is God's true intention upon earth. You know, the scriptures tell us, like you just said, to watch for the return of Jesus, watch for his coming. And one of the movements that is kind of quickly absorbed into broader dispensationalism is going to be the Millerites. And they sold all of their stuff, and they figured out the day for the end of the world, and they went up on their rooftops, and they waited for Jesus to return. And they waited and waited, and he didn't return. And so they went back and recalculated and waited and waited again, and he didn't return. And that's not how we're supposed to be waiting for Jesus to return. We're not supposed to be preparing for his return by building temples or by seeing ourselves in news headlines or, 
you know, seeing Apache attack helicopters in the book of Revelation. We're to prepare ourselves for his coming by living according to his word, by believing on him, by being cleansed by him, by being regularly fed by him, and by growing in knowledge of him. Through those means and those means alone are we going to be prepared, whether a third temple is erected or not. Through those means alone will we be prepared for when the real king returns again to rule forever. So we're coming up on the last couple minutes. So anything anything else for the listeners before we sign off? Definitely don't think of dispensationalism as having a whole lot to do with how or why the United States or the European Union or something is engaged in Israeli politics or the fortunes of of Israel or of Palestinians or or whatever, or why you know a lot more about this conflict from the news than you do about conflicts in Bali or conflicts in the Caucasus or something like that. That really has more to do. And, and the reason that I did the history of Zionism before the history of dispensationalism is that Zionism proper really matter just matters a lot more. Dispensationalism seems, and this is this is regrettable because, like you said, I don't think people crack their Schofield reference Bibles thinking, I want to come away with the idea that God has a physical body today. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is there. I and I think it's in Daniel, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, in the I was gonna say show notes, the study notes. Yeah, it's it's at least in the first edition. Maybe maybe it's edited out by now. Who knows? Right. They didn't they didn't, you know, think that, right? Um and, well, yeah, and... because you can actually find the Schofield reference Bible, but there's also the old Schofield reference Bible yes, that you can that's get. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when you want uh, to go add fontes, you know. Right. <laughs> but dispensationalism is is a kind of a fable that people first called fundamentalists and then after the Second World War called evangelicals told themselves about Zionism. It's it's not, it, it doesn't have a ton of historical precedent. The groups referenced in the Augsburg Confession were minuscule at the time, but it mattered for a certain time period. And it still matters, especially if you are in an evangelical heavy mm-hmm. part of the country, it still matters. Right. But it will, it will, for that reason, it will pass away because its plausibility relied on a lot of things, one of which was the idea that our major job as Christians is to support things going on in other countries. So we need to send money, we need to do this, we need to do that. I sincerely believe that if we hadn't had both the communications, the forms of communication that we have in the 20th and 21st centuries, and if American Christians had not rested on their loyal laurels regarding mm-hmm. the evangelization of their own country, that we could have had this spread of this message and the size of, say, John Hagee's church in San Antonio, if people had been more naturally and locally focused on evangelizing their neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. I think I I I I think, you know, without that communications media. There and and people just sort of assuming everyone around them is a Christian. There is no way we could have become so deluded and distracted, and that as <laughs> as our capacity to to care or to support things in other countries and to feel as passionately as people do about Israel and Palestine, so passionate, no similar passion about the decline in daily life of their own state. Okay, so passionate on the internet. As that declines, we just don't have the luxury of caring. So I think a lot of this will resolve itself. But for now, and 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 with the help of this of the Schofield Reference Bible, it I think it 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 does endure and it does it does matter. I would be interested to know where the listener who asked the question is from, because there this definitely varies, I think, widely by region. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, excellent discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Kuntz. Yeah, thank you. This has been a brief history of power. Thank you for listening. You know where to find us. Discernment, boldness, and compassion, Christian virtues sorely needed today. The Biblical Worldview Conference Chicago can help Christians and families for such a time as this. 
Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will address gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and confessing and sharing Christ in a woke culture. All this Saturday, November 4th. Go to worldviewchicago.org to find out more.